I got the words, I got the tune. I've been rehearsing under the moon, but I got nobody to hear my song, so I'm humming to myself. I got the place, I got the time. I got a lot of love words that rhyme, but I got nobody to hear my song, so I'm humming to myself. Hello and welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, I'll be putting an end to my series on Shirley Jackson with a quick look at We Have Always Lived in the Castle. Uh, There's a bunch of short stories in the Library of America collection, uh, some that were unpublished during her life, and you might want to check them out. I looked at a few of them, but I don't know if there's enough there to talk to do a whole episode on um certainly compared to the stories in the lottery i wasn't as 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 kind of pulled in by some of those tales so i'll just do what i did with jane bowles and 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 kind of move on from 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 there so after shirley jackson uh, i'll be taking a little bit of a break from recording but there shouldn't be too much of a a break in uploading because i have a bunch of episodes in the can Uh, and next will be i think i'll be finishing up the series 20th century girls with a look at Zora Neale Hurston's work. So that's two volumes from Library of America, so it'll be um, a couple months worth of episodes right there. Uh, looking at works like Mules and Men, looks at, look at, uh, of course, Her Eyes Were Watching God, um, some of her other stories. Uh, there's, I think there's one volume of her that includes her biography, her autobiography, and her, her like folktale writing, the, the one about voodoo in Haiti. Uh, of course, Mules and Men is about African American and folklore in the U.S. And then we'll, and then I think I'll start with that volume, and then we'll take a look at the the, the, the novels, which is another collection. Um, some well known, and and some maybe you haven't come across yet. So um, that will, I think, wrap up this, which turned out to be a fairly long series on 20th century women writers. There's a lot more I could, of course, look at. I could look at uh, um, Flannery O'Connor, Carson McCullers. Uh, and, and many others, but I think we got enough to, to move on. And then I'm thinking after that, I'm going to kind of go back to my roots a little bit and read some history. So there's a bunch of great historians included in the Library of America, such as uh, Washington Irving, such as, I mean, he wrote some history books uh, as well about the West, fur trade, stuff like that. Uh, we have um, Francis Parkman. He's like one of the, fir- the first great American historians. And who else? Maybe Henry Adams in his series of, of works on the Jefferson Madison years. So anyways, we'll uh, take a look at some history. And there, there may be some others that, that pop up. I think there's a few other historians represented in the Library of America. And I have quite a few of those volumes. So um, that, that's the kind of a long-term plan looking ahead after I'm, I finish up with this, uh, this survey of, of, of women writers. So anyways, uh, we have always lived in the castle. This novel was published in 1962, and I think that's, it might be her last novel. Some people call it her, her masterpiece. Um, let's see what else we got here. I'm looking at her survey. So in September 1962, we have always lived in the castle was published. Uh, a year later, there was the the haunting, which was the film adaptation of the haunting of the house, the the good one. Um, I haven't seen the TV series yet, um, and she started working on other novels, but she died in 1965, um, and and then she's she's history from that point, and, and we can thankfully enjoy all of her her works. So yeah, I kind of regret maybe not looking at some of her other 
stories and sketches. It's actually a big chunk. I just, I don't know. I, 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 I don't want to just w sweep through and talk, you know, two minutes about each of these these mini stories. Um, there's probably enough here for a couple episodes, but uh, just in bulk and content. But uh, yeah, moving on. Moving on to Zerlinda Hurston. I'll, I'll do that one complete for sure, though. I won't. I won't uh, take any shortcuts with Zerlinda Hurston. She's too important and too wonderful to to do that to. So We Have Always Lived in the Castle is a very, very short novel. It just clocks in at just a little bit over 100 pages. It's 10 chapters, 10 very short chapters, but there's a lot packed into this, this little novel. And it compares, I think, really in interesting ways to, to The Haunting of Hill House. Now, in The Haunting of Hill House, you have a house that's kind of scorned by the local villagers because of its reputation, its history, you know the, the the fear that it's haunted, and you have that same kind of dynamic in we have always lived at the in, in the castle, but here it's a family that has basically become the ostracized um, element. So she kind of take moves from the house to an individual character and even a, a small family, making that the the haunted um, element, you know, and the, or or even if you want to say an evil element, right? It kind of has some air of a of a murder mystery. Uh, that overhangs the first half of the novel. It gets resolved in the last third of the novel or so in, in a fairly predictable way, or maybe it's, it's kind of what we're going to expect uh, with the way this novel's going. Um, but like, also like Hill House, in, in Hill House you have the theme of, of isolation, of, of agoraphobia, of someone who, who kind of is being drawn into a place uh, all those themes show up here in We Have Always Lived in the Castle as well. Uh, we have uh, a young woman who's trying desperately to, to preserve uh, her isolation uh, in a house, uh, not by dying and becoming essentially a ghost of the house, but by isolating herself. Uh, we got uh, agoraphobia, this, this panic, this fear about, about going into the outside world that to them is very fearful or, or, or upsetting. Um, so those same themes show up here um, again. So it, it parallels that that novel very well, and I think they can be read together, uh, for, you know, for you know just some kind of a comparison of themes where they really are trying to do the same thing. I, I guess I would say We Have Always Lived in the Castle is is a better novel in in a lot of ways. Uh, even though I think more people might read The Haunting of Hill House, We Have Always Lived in the Castle is is just a really really solid um, study of of that 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 desire to completely withdraw oneself from from society, and it's something that Shirley Jackson has dealt with really from throughout her career. We saw it a lot in the lottery. We saw people who who have difficulties in regular society. We have you know strange communities. We have uh, isolation, a isolation and alienation, and uh, that, that discomfort of just like the oddity, the oddity of other people and those interactions. It's it's there in, on so many of her stories. It's there in Hill House, especially in the character of Eleanor Vance. But here it, it overhangs the whole thing. So this is in some ways her final statement and maybe her best statement on this theme of of agoraphobia and isolation. So it's a really really good novel. It doesn't take long to read. I couldn't find an audiobook version of that, but there was a YouTuber who read some of it, so I listened to some of her her rendition of it. It was it was quite good, but it's it's a short read. It's just two or three hours you can get through this this novel. Um, it, it kind of moves at a slightly faster pace than than Hill House, I think, as well. Um, not not nearly as chatty chatty 
not not the long scenes of people sitting around drinking brandy and, and chit chatting. It it kind of pushes the story along fairly fairly quickly. So the the story centers on this family called the the, the Blackwoods, and they're it's like a classical Gothic family. It's isolated from the rest of the community. It's in an old house. There's a weird mystery in the family. Um, all that, all those kind of gothic motifs are there. Uh, so our main character, our narrator, in fact, is Mary Catherine Blackwood, or she's all being just called Mary Cat by the, by the characters in the novel. And there are not that many. Uh, there's only really three people living in this house left, and we'll see, because everyone else, and we learned this in the very first, basically, sentence, first paragraph of the story, that everyone else in her family is dead. So we have uh, Mary Cat. Constance Blackwood, her sister, her older sister, by quite a bit. I think Constance is like 19 or so. And no, Constance, no, Mary Cat's like 18 or 19 at this point. Uh, maybe 16. Let me double check. Well, anyways, uh, she's, she's young. Mary Cat's quite young as a narrator. And there's events that happened like six years earlier, which she was central to, um, which what she did at a much younger age, like around twelve. Uh, Constance is is older in her twenties, and she's completely isolated. She's already kind of achieved this this Shirley Jackson ideal of being kind of locked away into into a house. She never leaves the house. Uh, there also is Uncle Jul, um, Julian, who is uh, Julius, Uncle Julius, who is quite sick and and crippled. And and dying, he's basically told he's going to die soon. And they're the three that live together. Everyone else in the family died tragically. Um, so all that happens during the first chapter is is Mary Cat goes into town for for supplies, which she does uh, regularly. She's the only one who goes out, but she doesn't spend a lot of time out. She just goes out when she needs to. Um, there's you know, there's a lot of discussion here about the house and how how things become part of the house. And I think a good example of that in this chapter is is a bunch of overdue books, which are never going to be returned, because she even says at this point in the novel that she doesn't plan to basically ever go back to the, or she's never going to go back to the library. Um, uh, she really dislikes going to town. She 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 she. You know, she kind of hates it, um, and we see a lot of themes of rot and decay, classic Gothic themes uh, throughout this. Um, the Blackwoods are a rich family, but they're not the only rich family, and they're totally scorned by the community. So she goes out to shop while the sister is is homebound, and the whole town is strange to her when she's around. They gossip about her, the kids make fun of her, joke about her, and they're the topic of, of rumors throughout the whole community. Um, but there's a lot of memories that she's able to connect, uh, like a crack in the sidewalk in front of a cafe, Stella's Cafe. And she does stop there and have some coffee. Um, and people have rumors that the Blackwoods are going to move and leave town. And they seem to want that. They seem not to want them not to hang around. And she denies that they are, in fact, moving. She gets bullied by, by a, guy, a guy named um, Jim Donnell uh, while she's out. And she constantly dreams about living on the moon and going to the moon. And that's a running motif through the story. That'd be her ideal life, is to live on the moon with Constance, with Uncle Julius, just away from everyone else. Hostility is really, really central to this, to this chapter. And you see it in the people making fun of her. The whole community is hostile to Mary Cat and hostile to the whole Blackwood family. 
Now in chapter two, she returns home and she immediately feels safer the minute she steps into the house. Um, again, there's this, a really strong connection between this house in whatever state it may be and, and whatever, however that state may change throughout the novel, that house is her, her sanctuary and the one place she feels secure. So even though Constance is the homebound one, it's like Mary Cat's not that far behind that, you know, being homebound herself. Um, Mary Katz is, is, gives the food to her sister because she's not supposed to deal with the food or prepare the food or have any connection to the food. Uh, this is foreshadowing something that, that we figure out. The big, I guess, the bombshell of the novel is foreshadowed in the fact that Julius and Constance don't let her deal with any of the food. Now, they're not totally isolated ent entirely. They do get visitors from time to time from other um, people, and the one visitor who, who makes regular appearances at the Blackwood house is Helen Clark. Now, Mary Cat does not want visitors. Mary Cat and, and to a lesser degree, Constance don't want anything to do with visitors, but Julius needs them, and he still has some connections to the, to the town and to, to some of these people. But since he's crippled, he can't go out on his own. So it ends up being uh, these people who visit the Blackwood estate. So there's just this very, very slight connection to the uh, to the to the town through these visitors and the one we get is is Helen Clark who comes with this other woman named Mrs. Wright now when these visitors come Mary Cat begins to have a intense fear and a realization that Constance may, may if she has too many connections with the people she may start to have her own desires to leave the house and to go out and she doesn't uh, want that she 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 has this ideal world that she's setting up that she's establishing um, she's certainly the protagonist of the novel in, in almost every way uh, and she doesn't want Constance leaving the house is going to disrupt her 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 ideal like living on the moon um, um, Now Clark sort of denies that the villagers um, Hate them and says oh, this is all in your head. They don't hate you that much But that, that's not the impression we got in chapter one. Of course, everything is from Mary Cat's point of view So, um, you know, it might be dis disturbed. Maybe we can trust um, What Clark's saying? Um, now, Mary Cat offers sugar to Mrs. Wright, and this is another bit of foreshadowing of the big bombshell that's going to happen later. Um, so Uncle Julius discusses the case, the, the, the history of the family. And so we're not that long into the novel before we finally get the story of, of, of what happened. And what we learn happens, and actually Uncle Julius is kind of a historian. He's been keeping a lot of careful notes about this event and the family, and he's got chapters and chapters, like dozens and dozens of chapters that he's putting together the notes on. That's going to be like the family history that's going to culminate in this event that he describes uh, to Mrs. Clark and, and for us, for the, for, the, for the reader. So the entire family was killed with arsenic that was put in the sugar. Um, Constance was the one... Well, Maricat Denise wasn't wasn't there, and Constant. Well, you know, it's you know, spoiler alert. I guess she she's the one who poisoned them. Um, just at twelve years old, Constance was the one who didn't get it because she didn't put sugar on her berries. She was the one person in the family who didn't put sugar on the berries, and it seems uh, Mary Cat knew that. Um, and Julius was the one survivor of the people who ingested the, the, the arsenic. And he goes into a lot of detail about the case. Like we learned that Constance was the one because she was preparing the food. She was the one who was, uh, or was it? No, I think maybe she, she was the one survivor. Uh, the one person who ate but didn't put sugar on. She was charged with the murder but acquitted because they didn't have any, any real evidence that 
that she was the one who did it. But everyone in the town thinks Constance got away with murdering her whole family. And that's, that's the root cause of this suspicion and this distrust that the rest of the community has for her. Um, Clark and Mrs. Wright um, are very, very curious about the house. It's kind of like a haunted house in a way, and they have a deep curiosity in, in the architecture and the, what's in the house. And, and Julius gives them a little bit of a tour. Um, and yeah, they're kind of like a tourist. One of the reasons they seem to visit is because they have that, this curiosity for this event, as does everyone in the town, but most people don't get that close to it. So that's, that's chapter two. Um, so, um, chapter three, uh, Mary Cat starts out this chapter saying she doesn't want any change. Quote, a change was coming and nobody knew it but me. Constance suspected perhaps. I noticed that she stood occasionally in her garden and looked not down at the plants she was tending, not at the back of her house, but outward towards the trees which hid the fence. And sometimes she looked long and curiously down the length of the driveway as though wondering how it would feel to walk to the gates, end quote. So her fear, Mary Cat's great fear is that Constance will want to leave. So it's the fear she expressed in the previous chapter. And she has this overarching feel of change. And this is something terrifying for her, some change in her life that she doesn't want anything disrupting this um, ideal world that she's created, you know, cultivated with Constance and Uncle Julius. Um, and yeah, she has, to, I mean, she wants to better, she wants to improve it even more. Eventually she wants to become even more isolated than she already is with, with Constance. Uh, but she's very, very fearful of this change that's coming. We learn a little bit in this chapter about Mary Cat's various routines. And um, we get a little bit more about Julius's memoirs and how he's trying to put these together. And he's very worried that he's not gonna finish his memoirs or that his notes will not get published or, or be revealed to the rest of the world if he dies. Um, we, we actually we get quite a lot in this chapter about Julius's condition as well. We learn that he he suffered brain damage from the arsenic. He lives in constant um, he lives in constant pain. He also dwells in the past a lot. He he's almost that's it's, I mean it's symbolized in him writing these memoirs. He essentially lives constantly in the past because he has essentially no future. Um, and Marikat and Constance also sort of live in the past. They're they're unwilling to to accept any change, especially especially Marikat. Um, now, Mary Cat does want to help Constance, you know, take care of Julius. Constance's job is basically, you know, she prepares the food and she has, she's like the caretaker for, for Uncle Julius. And Mary Cat, you know, often says she wants to do better by Uncle Julius. But the reality is that Uncle Julius probably will, will die, will die quite soon. Oh, I forgot something. Um, and it's, it's, it's Uncle Julian, <laughs> Julius, my handwriting is the fault there. Um, but there's another character in the house, an important character, a cat named Jonas. And Jonas, being a cat, is kind of interesting because Mary Cat's a bit of a witch. And we see her actually performing in magic of various types, kind of witchcraft. She, you know, casts spells and stuff like that. So there's, a, you know, it's, it's not clear whether these spells have any effect or anything, but it's certainly part of her identity and her character is that she's, she's essentially a witch. Okay, so chapter four begins with Mary Cat and Jonas kind of going around the grounds. They're, they're again, the only ones who really kind of leave the house to any major extent. And we see her kind of engaging in various, of some of her witchcraft, to be, to be frank. Now, she talks about three magic words. Uh, 
the Melody Gloucester Pegasus, these three words that she thinks are key to protecting the house and defending it. Um, at one point in this chapter, she even kills a bunch of snakes, you know, just because she doesn't like them, like they're intruders. Um, and she's, we see here in this chapter as well that she's very, very fearful of intruders because, in fact, one, one comes. And this is their cousin Charles arriving. And this is the change. In fact, chapter four begins with Mary Cat once again expressing her deep, deep fear that some change is, is going to come and disrupt her her world. And that's why she has to cast spells and keep kill the snakes and keep keep everything, you know, the same and, and perfect. But of course, people come, you know, she didn't like the previous visitors, but Charles is much more of a threat because he kind of comes as a suitor for for Constance. So there's some really interesting scenes where she she imagines trying to protect the house with these magic words. She sees Charles. She sees this man coming and she doesn't really recognize them, but she sees them coming and, and she's trying to hide out, make it look like there's no one at, no one's, no one's home. Obviously, there is. They never leave. Um, but this guy goes through different obstacles to get towards the house. And she, you know, she's she kind of blanches about this. But eventually he arrives and meets up with Constance and. Constance introduces him to Mary Cat, calling him a, you know, introducing him as Charles, their cousin. So this is probably, you know, some of the fear that Mary Cat was worried about. As Constance gets older, she's going to, you know, have suitors. She's going to, you know, they're a rich family. Uh, and she's marital age and all that. So that's some of the fear that she, that's in her head. So chapter four is mostly about this, the arrival of this disruptive element. So the first three chapters describe her, this world that she's constructed and the relationship with the village. And then in the middle part of, of the novel, we see various events that begin to disrupt this, this, you know, this castle idol that she's constructed. And uh, the first threat to it, the first explicit threat to it is Charles. There's a nice little dialogue in this chapter, which highlights Mary Cat's fears. Um, quote, it was the last of our slow, lovely days, although as Uncle Julian would have pointed out, we never suspected it then. Constance and I had lunch giggling and never knowing that while we were happy, he was trying the locked gate and peering down the path and wandering the woods, shut out for a time by our father's fence. The rain started while we sat in the kitchen and we left the kitchen door open so we could watch the rain slanting past the doorway and washing the garden. Constance was pleased the way our good gardener is pleased with rain. We'll see color out there soon, she said. We'll always be here together, won't we, Constance? Don't you ever want to leave here, Mary Cat? Where could we go, I asked her. What place would be better for us than this? Who wants us outside? The world is full of terrible people. I wonder sometimes. She was very serious for a minute, and then she turned and smiled at me. Don't you worry, my Mary Cat. Nothing bad will happen. There must have been just about a minute he found the entrance and started up the driveway, hurrying in the rain, because I only had a minute or two left before I saw him. I might have used that minute or two for so many things. I might have warned Constance Sama, or I might have thought of a new, safer magic word, or I might have pushed the table across the kitchen doorway as it happened. I played with my spoon and looked at Jonas, and when Constance shivered, I said, I'll get your sweater for you. That is what brought me into the hall as he was coming up the steps. So, I mean, it's so well written, and it really gets this sense of terror at just something as simple as a visitor coming, right? And this visitor is much more threatening than the previous visitors who are just curious neighbors and, and sort of family friends. So chapter four, a nice chapter that kind of brings us into the next part of the novel. Okay, so chapter five is mostly about Charles's visit to this house and the aftermath of Mary Cat, you know, starting to lose it a little bit at 
his presence. At first, she sort of doesn't believe that Charles is real, and she always ins- she keeps insisting that he's maybe a ghost or, or, or some, some other supernatural thing. Um, she, she talks to Constance in the morning, and I think Charles is still sleeping at this point, and she, she offers Constance, like, a, you know, talking about her dream of living on the moon again and wants to invite Constance to there. So, again, she's desperate to kind of preserve um, her relationship with Constance after this disruption has come in. Charles, of course, is staying in the house with them, and, and he begins to make connections to various uh, family members. Julian wants to begin writing again. Working, we're working on his memoirs a little bit more, and I think Charles' arrival seems to inspire him to kind of work on that again a little bit more to dig up more information about Charles' side of the family. Um, <clears throat> Mary Cat, meanwhile, <coughs> oh excuse me, Mary Cat, meanwhile, actually tries to cast a spell, uh, which she hopes will kind of remove Charles, and that is like th- breaking a glass on the floor. Uh, it doesn't work. Um, we learn a little bit more about the background here of the family, that Charles's family broke off connections with uh, Constance and the Blackwoods, the, the Blackwoods here, uh, after, after, during the trial, right? Um, but we also learn that it seems that Charles is running into money problems because his, you know, he didn't really get any inheritance money. So he, he has some interest here, uh, perhaps in, in money. But... Um, you know, Charles still, nevertheless, is friendly enough. He, he's very friendly to Julian. He tries to make connections to Mary Cat. He, he stays close with Constance. He tries to do a lot of help around the house, fixing, repairing things. All of this just drives Mary Cat more and more batty as she gets more and more anxious about this disruptive um, presence. Now, the, the chapter ends, interestingly enough, with Mary Cat talking about Poison. There's actually a few references to poison in this chapter. Mary Cat talks to him in a really creepy way about poison from mushrooms. Of course, the family was poisoned, so it's kind of a weird thing to talk about. Um, but there's also a, a suggestion about Constance being the murderer again, which is, of course, what most people think at this, at, you know, in pretty much the rest of the world thinks Constance is the murderer. She just wasn't convicted of, of the murders. Because there's something, there was an issue about Julian warning him about Constance's food, or he's his surprise that she's eating her food, and it's actually he seemed to be referring to like the, the nature of the food, like it's not good, or it's, the pancakes are too, too rich or something. Um, but the implication, of course, is you know you're brave to eat the food of the person who you know infamously poisoned her entire family. So we really see in this chapter Mary Cat beginning to break down a little bit because of Charles's presence, and we get a little bit more background into the family. And we see Charles is essentially a fairly good guy trying to, to help out this family and, and make connections to the part of his family that's still around. All right, uh, chapter six then is we start to actually see the changes that Charles's presence does bring, that Mary Cat was right, that Charles would um, disrupt things. Um, the first thing that happens is Charles runs the errands in town instead of Mary Cat, and it's a change of the tradition, change of, of, of how things are done. Uh, but Mary Cat uses this time to try to figure out how she can remove Charles. She tries various spells throughout this chapter and the next chapter to try to re- remove them. Um, now, as Charles comes back from the errands, he finds a watch on the tree. Now, Mary Cat's been leaving bearing money, leaving knickknacks all throughout the grounds of the house with the exception of the summer house, as we'll see a little bit later. And these all have some kind of protective features. They're all tied to her magic in some way. Um, Charles is is 
you know, he's like physically disrupting the house as well as being a, just a presence there. He's like smoking in the house. He's leaving his stuff. And this is all adding to Mary Kett's discomfort with Charles's presence. And she, she is becoming more and more uh, desperate to, to get him out. Um, so she just decides, she's, she tried various spells, but she eventually just tries to, to tell him to go, to ask him to leave. Um, and she claims things like she's making Julian sicker. And in fact, Julian is seemingly getting worse and worse off throughout these middle chapters. Um, Mary Cat eventually follows Charles into town at one point, And when she returns, Constant confronts her on this and actually begins to rethink their seclusion. So Constance, it's not, you know, it's, it, Mary Cat seems to be a designer of a lot of this, but Constant is also kind of the one who kind of enforces this seclusion, at least in her mind. And she begins to think that maybe they need to be out there a little bit more. Uh, she thinks, for instance, Julian should be moved to a hospital. And Mary Cat is at age. She should start having boyfriends and things like that. So, you know, the, you know he's, she's more interested in kind of breaking the family out of their seclusion, which is, of course, exactly what Mary Cat was afraid of and why she thought Julian's presence would be just so disruptive. Um, now, Mary Cat thinks time is running out. She, uh, well, Jackson writes... Um, quote, I sat very quietly listening to what she had almost said. Time was running shorter, tightening around her big house, crushing me. I thought it might be time to smash the big mirror in the hall, but then Charles's feet were coming heavily down the stairs and through the hall into the kitchen. Well, well, everyone's here, he said. What's for dinner? All right, so he's, she's, you know, breaking windows. It's more of these spells things, and I don't know. It'd be interesting to maybe go through spell by spell and, and see where these are drawn from. I know uh, she did write a book on witchcraft, um, Shirley Jackson, so maybe she's drawing some of that stuff from those kind of um, works. So chapter six is mostly about this, uh, the how the they get pulled into, or how, um, what am I trying to say, how, uh, Charles's presence actually is pulling this household in a new direction as Constance begins to think more and more about going out, uh, leading Mary Cat to more and more desperate actions. So, you know, chapter seven, it, it's on a Thursday. This, Mary Cat says, is her most powerful day, the days her magic is strongest. And she casts a spell, hoping it'll remove him. And we have a little bit of description of this um, here, just because it's, it's interesting stuff. Um, <clears throat> where is it? Charles had taken a hammer and found nails in a board and was pounding away mercilessly at the broken step. From the kitchen window, I could see that he was doing it very badly, and I was pleased. I wished the hammer to pound his thumb. I stayed in the kitchen until I was certain that they were all, they were all keep where they were for a while, and then I went upstairs and into my, our father's room, walking softly so Constance would not know. I was there. The first thing to do was to stop our father's watch, which Charles had started. I knew not. I knew he was not wearing it to mend the broken steps because he was not wearing the chain, and I found the watch and the chain on our father's signet ring in our father's dresser while Charles's tobacco pouch and four books of matches. I was not allowed to touch matches, but in any case, I would not have touched Charles's matches. I took up the watch and listened to it ticking because Charles had started it. I could not turn it all the way back to where it had formerly been because he had kept it going for two or three days, but I twisted the winding knot backwards until there was a small complaining crack from the watch and the ticking stopped. When I was sure that he could never start it ticking again, I put it back gently where I had found it. One thing at least, I had been released from Charles's spell, and I thought that I had at last broken through his tight skin and invulnerability. 
I need not bother about the chain, which was broken. I disliked the ring. Eliminating Charles from everything he had touched was almost impossible, but it seemed to me that I had altered our father's room and perhaps later the kitchen and the drawing room and the study and finally the garden. Charles would be lost, shut out from what he'd recognized and would have to concede that this was not the house he had come to visit and so would go away. I altered the father's room very quickly and almost without noise. It's kind of crazy, actually, what she's doing here and her, her thought process about why this will work. But it somehow ties to her magic in some way. Um, but there seems to be some changes in Charles, or at least Charles is becoming increasingly frustrated with this household, with Julian. It seems Julian doesn't know who he is and has kind of rumors about his past. Um, Julian starts saying weird things like Mary Cat was died in the orphanage during the trial, Constance's trial, and other bizarre things like this. Um, uh, Charles also seems to get upset about the fact that he keeps finding money and jewelry and stuff in the grounds. And so Mary Cat buried these silver dollars and stuff, and Charles found them. And Mary Cat's not sure how he found it. She thinks he's got some kind of power that he's able to just go right to the, the location and, and grab this stuff. So maybe Charles has some of his own little power, at least in Mary Cat's mind, he seems to have this. Um, Charles, uh, his main objective seems to be getting Constance out of the house. He also seems to think Julian should be in a, in a home. She, he doesn't really want to um, be there, uh, being part kink, you know, watching, observing all of this. I mean, if you've ever been in a house full of weird people who, you know, probably need to get out a little bit more, that's kind of the feeling I, I think Charles has here. Um, so things become more and more tense between Constance and Julian and, and, and Charles, this guest. But eventually when they're confronted on whether he's going to leave, I think it's by Mary Cat. Charles says, no, he's not leaving. He's staying. I mean, I, I think I'm not sure he has anywhere to really go. And in the final scene of this chapter, Mary Cat goes out to the summer house. And the summer house is a place they hadn't been in 60 years. So even though they're, they haven't left the ground much, they, they haven't even used much of the ground. And she hasn't really cast her spells on the summer house. Um, quote, I had not been in near the summer house for six years, but Charles had blackened the world and only the summer house would do. Jonas would not follow me. He disliked the summer house and when he saw me turning on the overgrown path which led there, he went another way as though he had something important to do and would meet me somewhere later. No one had ever liked the summer house very much, I remember. Our father had built, plant, planned it and intended to leave the creek near it and build a tiny waterfall, but something had gotten into the wood and stone and paint where the summer house was made, built and made it bad. A bad house again, huh? Just like in Haunting a Phil House. Uh, going on, our mother had once seen a rat in the doorway looking in, and nothing after that could persuade her to go there again, and where our mother did not go, no one else went. I had never buried anything around there. The ground was black and wet, and nothing buried there would have been quite comfortable. The trees pressed too closely against the side of the summer house and breathed heavily on its roof, and the poor flowers planted here once had either died or grown into huge, tasteless, wild things. Um, and she goes inside, and she has a fantasy about the ideal life she's going to have with her, her sister. And they share, I love yous and, and, and we're going to care for each other and all that. So this is her effort, her, her, her effort to try to escape this, this chaos that Charles has, has unleashed on the, on the house. So that's chapter seven. So in chapters eight, nine, and 10, we get to the climax of the novel. Chapter eight's a big one where kind of everything goes, gets a little goes a little bit crazy at the end. So chapter eight begins kind of just as a continuation of the themes in chapter seven. Life with Charles goes on as before, although it's a little bit more tense. Mary Cat uh, 
keeps trying to limit his influence and thinks she's making progress in limiting his influence. Um, and But then there's a fire that breaks out, and this kind of throws everything. This becomes... The, the, this is the climax of the novel and the big turning point, uh, which resolves all the threads here, essentially. So chapter eight, a really important turning point uh, in the story. Um, so the fire, it seems it's caused by Charlie's pipe because he's the one who's smoking. He has the matches and Mary Kay's not allowed to touch matches. Uh, so it, it's probably was Charlie's, Charlie's, Charles' pipe. So Charles does, in fact, his presence does disrupt things in the house and change things fundamentally. Um, Charles, during when the fire breaks out, he wants to save the money. His his primary interest in the Blackwoods estate seems to be its money. So he seems to be obsessed with the jewelry, with finding the money buried underground, and all that stuff. So, you know, the metaphor though here of a safe though I think is interesting because ultimately the Blackwood estate becomes a safe for Mary Cat and Constance, who who you know get locked in. But the events of the fire, you know make that possible and set the context for the house itself becoming a safe. Um, so Mary Cat, though, thinks of the fire is kind of a good thing because the fire will ultimately destroy Charles's influence. Her indifference to everything during the fire is kind of actually kind of wild, I think. There's one time where she's talking just about or thinking about just how this will disrupt the dinner schedule or something. It's pretty weird, but it, it is a major fire. Um, now, after the fire takes off or begins the crowd begins to emerge to watch it and it's a really great moment where it's kind of a, it's almost like a old horror movie where you have the, you have the fire at the old estate and the crowds people with their pitchforks come to to jeer on the killing of the monster or something that that's kind of what happens here it's, it's a little bit over the top i think but it it's kind of explicable in the way it's been set up in the first chapter how much the town really is anxious about the blackwood estate and doesn't think much of them um, so the mob begins shouting, actually shouting at the firemen to let the house burn. And some people saying, like, if I was the fire marshal, I'd let it burn. And um, they're, they're chanting. They start singing chants and songs about the, about the murders, about the arsenic murders. It, it's really a really, really bizarre mob mentality. They're, they're, they're just enjoying it and delighting in it. And it's, it really is like the mindless villagers uh, laying siege to the, to the monster's castle. Uh, so they want to see the fire. They want to see the house completely burned down. The Blackwoods eradicated from this this neighborhood, um, and they eventually, did, you know, storm the the house to try to make sure that happened. Now they don't affect. They don't. The fire is put out before they're able to, you know, but before they have much of an effect. But they do kind of actually charge the house. It's really, really kind of shocking. I was like, you know, when I read that, I'm kind of amazed that Jackson went that far with this this imagery that we've you know seen so much in in like those old horror movies or I don't know how often it was done but it's it's kind of a classic scene right is it in one of the in Frankenstein or something I'm sure there's others that did it um, but the, yeah the the villagers with pitchforks in the monstrous castle is is a is a trope um, Mary Cat and Constance during all this eventually they escape and they go to a safe space near the near the creek that they have for themselves and they they sort of hide out now all, during all this also Julian dies and there's a doctor there who you know notices that that Julian had died during this and it, at first there's some question whether he was poisoned or killed by Constance or, or Mary Cat but it seems he just had a you know, heart failure he was already declining pretty rapidly in the previous few chapters 
Now, in the safe space, in the safe space that Constance or that Mary Cat brought Constance to, they have a little bit of a conversation, and Mary Cat admits to the poisoning, and that's how chapter eight ends. So, chapter eight, I think it's the longest chapter in the book, but it's a real, it's a real hoot. It's a lot of fun. Um, so, in chapter nine, is uh, in chapter nine, Julian is taken to the hospital. Of course, he's already dead, and the girls, the sisters, emerge from their 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 sheltering place, and they find that the fire has has changed things. Now, one thing it's done is it's destroyed the second floor of the house. Now, there are moments where the second floor becomes a place that people can look out and see into the village or see farther out. I think it's significant that it's the first, second story is destroyed. Of course, if the first story is destroyed, the house probably is not going to stand, right? But at this level, by destroying the top floor, it isolates the sisters even more if they stay in that house. It becomes, they can't even look out, right? They, you know, they... They become more and more trapped in the first floor, which can't look out at the rest of the world. Um, uh, so they begin to um, take back control. Uh, there's a lot of discomfort among Mary Ken, especially about her schedule, her habits. It's so important to her that she has strict habits. That's partially why she was disrupted so much by Charles's coming. Um, and Mary Cat suggests that she can take Constance to the moon now. And, and so, in fact, that seems to be what happens. This house then becomes her, her perfect isolation. Uh, but they got a lot of work to do. So they go to, to see the, how much of the house is destroyed. Um, the ground floor is more or less intact. They find they have all sorts of supplies, a lot of preserves, a lot of food stored behind. Uh, but, um, you know, there's a, they talk a little bit about the plan for Julian's funeral or whether they're going to go, but it's pretty clear they're not going to go. They're, they're, they're done with the rest of the world at this point. So they don't even go to attend Julian's funeral. And they begin to clean up, though. And they begin to clean up and begin to restore order step by step, literally beginning to lock themselves up in this house. They begin to cover the windows um, after cleaning things up, blackening the windows so people can't look in and they can't really look out. Um, preventing visitors. Now, some visitors do come, specifically Dr. Levy and, and Jim Clark. I think before we met that, um, Mrs. Clark, Helen Clark, this is um, same the same family. Jim Clark comes and they talk about Julian and his funeral and the plans for that, but they are not going to <laughs> attend this funeral. Uh, the chapter ends kind of as chapter eight ends with the discussion about the murder and the poisonings. And we see uh, a little bit of regret and guilt in Mary Kat's um, conversation about her decision when she was just a little girl to, when she was like 12, to murder everyone else in the family. Um, she also clarifies how she knew that Constance wouldn't eat the sugar because she didn't put sugar on her, her fruit. But they agree never to mention it again. So they, they, they discuss this and then they put that element of their lives behind them. So then we get to chapter 10, the denouement of the, of the novel. Quite a lot happens in this chapter, but we see after some time has passed, the sisters have established a new order, a new established order, but instead of, now they never leave, they never go out of the house at all. In fact, uh, they start to barricade the place up using even Julian's wheelchair as part of the barricade. Um, you know, there is a kind of a little memorial to Julian nearby, but they never go there. Uh, they just plant some flowers. They're kind of in memory of him. I think Constance does that. But they increasingly barricade the house so no one can get in, right? And they blacken the windows, and they just live inside the, the house. Um, people do come. Uh, we have uh, various visitors. 
For instance, uh, Helen Clark visits at one point and she's stopped by the barricade and turned around. Charles visits very dramatically, calling out to the sisters, but they don't answer. He's with some other people who say you should just give up on them, but, uh, but Charles still has uh, an interest in this, in this house, but he can't get in. They're completely blocked out. And then the weirdest thing is that people begin to like leave food out for the sisters as like offerings. And they'll come out and get this food, but only when everyone's gone, like at night, and bring it in. It's kind of it's like an offering. And it, the book's called We Have Always Lived in the Castle, right? And there's this, metaf- this, this kind of symbolism of feudalism almost, right? Where you have the feudal lord in the estate, in the castle, and you have the peasants you know, offering food, right? Taxes or rents or whatever to the, to, the, to the aristocracy, to the feudal lord, right? And why the villagers do this, I'm not quite sure, but they start to, to leave these offerings out of some kind of charity for for these girls, but it almost becomes like a weird tax. It's, it's really, really bizarre towards the end. And it's great stuff, I, but it's a really, really creepy chapter in, in how, you know, they become more and more insular and obsessed with, with, you know, creating this new world. Even Julian's stuff becomes a little bit disruptive to their, what they've created, right? I think putting Julian's wheelchair as part of the barricade rather than leaving it in the house is some kind of memory to him. You know, it's, it seems to be a meaningful um, part of this, this, this moon. I mean, basically, Mary Cat says to Constance that we are on the moon now. We we have achieved this. So um, that's that's what she was after, and that's what she's achieved. And the house essentially becomes a weird haunted house that that kids joke about and talk about and investigate out of curiosity, um, but you know, no one really starts to approach. And that's that's how the novel ends. Um, so. Really, really interesting novel. I think in many ways more interesting than The Haunting of Hill House and, and, and even more interesting than some of the stories in the lottery. I had a lot of fun with this one. I, I think I've actually never read it before. Um, I, I must have glanced at it, but I think I skipped it when I first went through Shirley Jackson's writings where I did a really brief brief reading. But doing a close reading of They've Always Lived in the Castle was really, really worth it. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful novel, and I really encourage you to, to check it out and, and enjoy it. Um, it's really the pinnacle, I think, of her theme of, of agoraphobia, of isolation, of, of the evil house. The theme of the evil house is here, certainly. The theme of, of family. It's certainly a wonderful gothic novel. It has all those gothic themes of family, family mystery, decay, um, magic, you know, witchcraft, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the house, right? The, the, the old decaying house. Um, the decaying family, all the stuff is in there and it is really a great representation of the American Gothic. Um, it actually is kind of like a horror novel in some ways. It has a lot of the, the, the kind of the tropes of a horror film. Like it's got witch or, or a horror novel. It's got witchcraft. It's got uh, the, the mob storming the castle. It's got the, you know, the, the, the haunted house almost. I mean, essentially the, the Blackwood estate becomes essentially a haunted house by, by the end, you know, or dwelling like, basically witches living there you got the the cat familiar all this wonderful stuff here it's really really fun and i think it's um one of my favorite novels i've looked at in quite a while in this series so pick up uh we have always lived in the castle or actually i think this library of america book of shirley jackson's writing is really worth it you get uh, a bunch of stories i think about all together over 40 stories and these two novels. But I think there's enough other Shirley Jackson writing that maybe we can get some more later on by them if, 
if Library of America is desperate for titles, or you know, I, I think I think they should think about maybe putting together some more of her writing in another book. So that's going to do it for this series on Shirley Jackson. Like I said, I'm not going to look at the rest of her her stories. There's a few good ones, like uh, the possibility of evil, um, but I don't know. It, I just didn't feel too inspired to to go through that story by story the way I did with the lottery. It's um, I'm gonna have to find a better way to do short story collections because sometimes you know with a lot of different stories and you know there's not the time then to go deeply into each one as much as maybe we could. So um, I'm gonna give that some thought when you know at some point I look at Hawthorne for instance. It's just you know it's like a hundred stories or look at Poe that way too. Maybe uh, a slightly different approach is in order for that, but. We'll see. Um, it, it's a mixed bag, I think, those last stories. Some of them weren't even published in her, in her lifetime. Not, not nearly as strong as the ones in the lottery. But uh, overall, really, really great collection. A great writer, uh, a national treasure. Um, certainly, don't just read the lottery, the story, if, if you were assigned it. Don't think that's all you need to read of her, I think. Haunting of Hill House, We Have Always Lived in the Castle, the other stories in the lottery, all really essential uh, American literature that... that should be appreciated as widely as possible. So that does it for this series on Shirley Jackson. I'll see you next time when I, I believe I'll start with Mules and Men by Zora Neale Hurston. It's going to be a couple months before I record that, but hopefully there won't be too much of a gap in, in uploading. Um, but I'll see you then, and I'll, I'll, I'm looking forward to taking a little bit of a break and then getting back into it with a new, uh, some new energy and maybe a fresh fresh mind. So, um, yeah, so the series on American women is continuing, but we're just going to look at one more American woman writer, Zora Neale Hurston. Um, I'll see you then. Uh, thanks, as always, for listening. I'd like to prune it under the moon, but I got nobody to hear my song, so I'm coming.